to provide guidance to mankind. No vision can grasp you. Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frick. And welcome, my friends and fellow Damons, to episode 16 of Damonosophy 2.0. Today's episode is going to feature a talk that I recently gave in Kona, Hawaii, to a group assembled there. It's called Design for divinity and it touches on some key themes uh, that you will have heard before on this show like individuality free will and immortality the idea that these are things that we are designed for as human beings that the structure of the human brain and psyche and soul complex it is intended that we achieve these these things implied by the uh, apprehension of individuality, free will, and immortality. But before I get into that, there's a couple of announcements I'd like to share with you. Uh, first and foremost is the Black Flame Tarot. There's a new tarot deck out that is straight up left-hand path. It's called the Black Flame Tarot. And this is a magical work featuring hand-drawn pieces inspired by Setian black magical themes, Art Nouveau paintings, and feminine demonic currents. Also drawing ideas from esoteric schools, the Black Flame Tarot is a useful divinatory tool for personal growth and pathways to sovereignty. This amazing deck was created and conceived by Jennifer C. McAtee, written in collaboration with Paul F. McAtee. The deck features 78 cards, including the major and minor arcana, along with a fold-out guide. It's highly recommended. Um, everyone who's gotten this so far is just amazed by it. You know, go you know, Google Black Flame Taro, and you'll see um, all the hype that's uh, been generated from this. And uh, if you want to get one for yourself, it's easily found. You go to uh, Onfer, uh, Big Cartel, and search on there. Or you can go to uh, the Damonosophy homepage at damonosophy.com, and there's a link for it there, or you can just Google search, and you'll, you'll find it before long. But uh, I think you're going to be amazed by this deck. The artwork on it and the usage of color is just really uh, dark and inspiring and fiery. And the symbolism is is so rich that you'll spend hours um, looking at this stuff, especially if you're a left-hand path follower. You're going to see a lot in here that resonates with you. The other thing I wanted to share with you is Stephen Flowers' new book, Original Magic, is out. Uh, This is a long-awaited third installment in his uh, Zoroastrian works. And it's a complete guide to the theory, practice, and history of Mazdan magic, the first organized system of magic. 
provides a complete curriculum of magical study and initiation centered on exercises key to the sacred Zoroastrian calendar, details advanced magical rituals and practices based on archaic Persian formulas, including fire rituals and divine invocations, and explores the history and lore of Persian magic, explaining how the author reconstructed the original Mazdan system of magic. And it's a great book. I'm about 75% through it myself. If you were a fan of uh, Flower's book, Nine Doors of Midgard, then you will appreciate this. It's a sim- similar sort of thing in that it uh, maps out all of these practices in relationship to a calendar, uh, to the body-soul complex, uh, to where you can set up a daily um, daily meditations and, and, and recitation systems to um, really kind of auto-hypnotize yourself into really deep diving into the essence of the original system of magic. So definitely check it out. And with that, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, start the uh, feature of the lecture for today, which is Design for Divinity. Well, I do have some very good news for you all today. You already have everything that you need to have. Total individuality, total freedom, and total immortality. And you have already made the most important decision of your life. You've already made a conscientious decision in favor of all of these things. And you've already taken responsibility for them. That's what I want you all to realize as this whole thing moves forward and we come to a conclusion of it. Is that the hardest parts of it, you actually already did the hardest parts. The key is in the remembering. It's always in the remembering. And when this discussion is over, you will have a clearer picture of who you are, why you came here, and where your destiny lies. Perhaps you're weird. You'll have a better understanding of how to unlock what is already inside of you. The possibility of achieving the ultimate potential endowed upon you by the Prince of Darkness. Now, I'm going to talk about design and the idea that we're designed for individuality, freedom, and immortality. We were made this way, and we were built to achieve certain ends. And as it turns out, we're actually quite good at it, even though we may suffer from occasional memory lapses. So you see, when we talk about ideas like set or isolate intelligence, we're actually talking about that design in one sense. The design of a rational mind that's inextricably individualistic, isolate, and self-reflexive, and whose decisions are necessarily personal and in some sense arbitrary, and that they are separated from some external divine 
mandate or mission. But the apprehension of that design is actually axiomatic, meaning everything else flows from it, that apprehension, from this fundamental ability to apprehend the principle of causality and our ability to naturally ratiocinate, to form judgments by a process of logic and reason, or to use the rational mind. So think about it. The average adult human being, once advised of the existence of logic, does not need to be told why logic is significant. We understand instantly that logic is real, significant, and correct. No one responds to it. Well, why be logical? Okay, some people do that. But we all understand that that's like not really an actual uh, you know, rebuttal. So we understand instantly that logic is real, significant, and correct, and that it's, well, in essence, it's logical. And this is because the structure for it is pre-existing. It's in the structure of our brain, our psyche. It's part of our design. And sure, we can use our rational mind for solving algebra problems or working out logical proofs. But the fact is, we use it in a very practical sense to make decisions about life on a daily basis for all manner of things. So we, maybe we're starting out thinking about this idea of using the rational mind in a really you know, big sense in a divine sense, but we actually use this functionality in very ordinary, common ways. Some estimate the average person makes as many as 35,000 decisions a day, assessing things like time, place, and value. And this uh, goes back to what uh, the high priest was uh, uh, talking about in his presentation about the, about the glyphs, is that that we have this ability to assess value out of things. So I want to talk for a moment about the left-hand path and the right-hand path and how they take man, how they approach the significance of human life on earth. So the right-hand path, and by this I mean Abrahamic religions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and also many political systems, certainly uh, fascism, Marxism, and things like this. They begin not with observing man as he is, as he is found, but they begin with an idealized social order. They begin with the vision of an ideal state, an ideal order, that then man must fit in. Man is an obligated to fit into this. And usually it doesn't work out, right? I mean, it, when has there been a system presented to us as this is the way man is to live, the way we are supposed to live, and, and it was easy, and everyone just said, yeah, let's do it, that's great, wonderful, no problems. No, there's always been a problem. There's always been a problem. So this is why we have... Uh, why many of these systems become necessarily authoritarian. This is necessary to force people into that. Christianity was such a great thing. Everyone would just naturally love it, be into it. They wouldn't need force. They wouldn't need punishment. They wouldn't need sin. 
So they begin by establishing these expectations and guidelines for this order, and from there, work their way backwards to man as an individual. So here they find man as a component of that order and oblige to him to abide by certain guidelines, uh, socially, economically, and even sexually. They do not ask how the individual feels about this, whether he thinks it is just or desirable. Both his mind and his body are obliged to conform, almost always by coercion, by force, or the threat of force. They know what's best for you. They have a plan for putting everyone in their proper place. So this is where also the idea of collectivism emerges. And in particular, it's the presence of coercion which distinguishes collectivism from voluntary cooperation amongst free individuals. Collectivism means the subjugation of the individual to the group or rather, the idealized vision of that group. It does not mean voluntary cooperation or collaboration between free individuals. There's no mystical authority or divine imperative mandating that we must accept the evil of coercion, subjugation, or enslavement of our fellow men in order to exist as a society. In reality, societies form themselves quite naturally and productively by the action of willful and self-interested individuals creating value and voluntarily exchanging value. Value in resources, goods, services, energy, all the things that we have going on in society, but also magic. And this is where we can stop and say, what we do here in the temple is a microcosm of what the rest of the world is like in some sense, in some essential sense, in the way that we are able to exchange. I mean, there's all this, this, all, all this exchange going on here, right? But no one is being depleted, right? No one is being taken advantage of by this. Everyone emerges with more than they came here with. There's this idea of a zero-sum game. The actions that we undertake in the Temple of Set defy that, because everyone wins. So the left-hand path takes man as we find him, an individual who, again, is able to independently make thousands of decisions a day that are based on his particular needs and in relation to his own unique point in space and time and his own personal and idiosyncratic preferences. Or another way of saying that is his own subjective universe. So for instance, uh, Gurdjieff found man as an individual, but largely as a machine, subservient to certain natural mechanical forces with a small part of him that is essential and that can grow into something conscious and willful. He said that man as he is has no individual eye, but there are instead hundreds and thousands of small separate eyes. 
and yet will and individuality is part of his providence, part of his natural right to claim. Again, part of his design, and thus his potential that he might yet fulfill. It might be buried down deep in there somewhere, but again, the remembering. So that's why in that system, there's always saying, remember yourself. Remember yourself, you idiot. (laughs) Anton LaVey found individual man as a carnal being, just another animal, sometimes better, but more often worse than those that go on four legs. A being endowed with the potential for responsibility, wisdom, and kindness, and whose natural aim is his own personal vital existence, indulgence, and if nothing else, LaVey was a champion of private ownership of the body. This is mine. You own this. You came into the world. This is yours. Your property. Then Ra and Set took this same line of thinking and extended it to man's metaphysical existence. In addition to a material sovereignty of the body, the ownership of that, we also have sovereignty of the mind. The psyche and that this is embodied in the idea of isolate intelligence, which is indelibly part of our design based on a first iteration of the same, the principle of isolate intelligence. And really, it's the metaphysical fact of isolate intelligence that leads to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is individuality. So from this metaphysical idea of isolate intelligence flows the principle of individuality in more of a social context. It's the metaphysical fact of isolate intelligence that forms the basis for the emergence on a social level of the experience of individuality. So I'm going to get Oxford Dictionary on y'all for a minute. Um, The first definition of individuality from Oxford is the quality or character of a particular person or thing that distinguishes them from others of the same kind, especially when strongly marked. And number two is separate existence. That's it. So to me, that's really similar to the phrase isolate intelligence. There's a lot of similarity in that. And isolate intelligence means that for intelligence to exist, it must enjoy a separate existence from other instances of intelligence. That each instance of intelligence must occupy different space and time, and that for it to exist, it must be able to distinguish itself from others. I'm different than y'all. I'm like Kurt Russell in the movie The Thing, where I'm like, I know you're not all those things because you'd all just jump on me right now and kill me. So there's still individuality here. Dr. Flowers elaborates on this in the Crystal Tablet, where he says, the distinction is the result of the existence of the principle of isolate consciousness within the universe and the presence of the gift of that intelligence within individual members of the human species. The left-hand path solution is then to cultivate and nurture this intelligence as a separate and unique quality that it may kefir, 
Here's the climax. Kefir leads to individually determined freedom. Individually determined freedom. Not group determined freedom. Not socially determined freedom. Or organizationally determined freedom. The true freedom promised by Kefir can only be self-determined. There's no other option or else it's not individuality. It's not freedom. Isolate intelligence means that we are individuals. Isolate intelligence facilitates individuality. As our own particular unique experience of isolate intelligence emerges from the principle of isolate intelligence, the Prince of Darkness, we realize that that is part of our design. It's what we were made for. It's what we were designed for. We see that Kefir is part of our design, and we also see that responsibility is part of our design. And it is only we as humans, as children of the gift of set, that can take responsibility. We don't talk about animals taking responsibility. It doesn't make sense. We talk about how we take responsibility, how I must take responsibility for this. And finally, we realize that being able to distinguish slavery from freedom, voluntary acts from coercive acts, is also part of our design. It means that we have rational self-interest and that we have a right, a natural right, to claim our psyche, our body, as our own property, to do with as we will. It is the fundamental state upon which Aleister Crowley's Do What Thou Wilt is based. This free and sovereign isolate intelligence is literally the gift of set. And violating the natural rights of individuals that are indissoluble from that gift whether by coercion, theft, or slavery, literally profanes and denigrates the gift of set. For clearly, we were designed with purpose to be as we are. So from isolate intelligence and individuality flows the concept of fundamental natural rights. So I'm going to talk about some Enlightenment-era stuff for a moment. The 17th century Enlightenment philosopher John Locke articulated uh, these fundamental rights quite well. Life, liberty, and property. He used the term natural rights to refer to these. So I'm going to talk about this idea of rights a little bit. I think it's worth looking at because this is a word that we hear a lot these days. And it's used in different ways that maybe um, are worth examining. So the new Oxford definition of right is a right considered to be inherent or inalienable, especially in connection with the individual's relationship to the state and to society. So interestingly, John Locke was also the first to define the self as being a continuity of consciousness, which is something we spend a lot of time talking about in the Order of Leviathan. These rights must be understood as something that flows from your fundamental nature rather than as something granted to you. In other words, not applicable to things that you need other people to give you or deliver to you. 
like food, water, goods, services. You see, you can't have a right, or a natural right at least, to something that someone else has to provide to you. So you don't have a right to be served by someone else. That's kind of like the idea, guiding idea behind slavery, that some people have a right to be served by other people. And therefore, it's morally permissible to force certain people to serve you or rob certain people in order to pay for that service. You do have a natural right to your life, and that means a right to not have it taken away from you. You have a natural right to not be unjustly killed or aggressed against. And in turn, you have a natural responsibility not to unjustly kill or aggress against another conscious being. And again, this would be a denigration of the gift of set. And this is encapsulated in the golden rule, do not unto others. And I mean, this is something even Anton LaVey had his own like sort of a, you know, version of this thing. This is something that really, even though it's, it's distasteful to think of the golden rule and where it came from and everything because of the, um, well, the, the Christianity of it. Still, the, the reality is that this is just sort of a, a, a fundamental, natural thing that we perceive that, well, I shouldn't do unto anyone else that I wouldn't want that done to me, right? I mean, didn't our parents tell us this? And this is like fairly, a fairly obvious aspect of existence. And I think the only reason people start doing it is because for some reason they feel they can dehumanize other people. Well, they're not really a person for some reason, so therefore I don't have to acknowledge that with them. So you do have a natural right to uh, liberty and to live freely, to not be forced into a cage, and to do what you will so long as it causes no harm to others or interferes with them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about property, because I think it's worth looking at our physical, this, this gets down to our physical material existence here, and this is very much the basis of where we're from. So due to isolated intelligence and the nature of a perception, we're naturally inclined to feel ownership over our bodies. And further through our works, we can claim other external aspects of the universe as our own property. So for example, if I work and save money, I bought this shirt, you know, I can consider this my possession. So we establish ownership of things outside of our body through this sort of interaction with the universe. And really, it's, it's a fairly magical thing. This is why I think when we're talking about magic, we're not like out in left field. We're not talking about crazy shit. I mean, this is what happens through exchange with people just in ordinary life. It's like uh, the essence of magic. It's a natural act of applying our mind and our will to the universe to cause change in accordance with will. It's uh, Dr. Flower's formula of see, awaken, act applied to a certain object from which ownership arises. And getting back to John Locke for a moment, who talked about all these things, the concept of private property begins with, your, with yourself or the body. So that's where the whole concept that we can do these things, well, it's because our existence coming into being here, I think you said the age of two, trying to remember, remember back that far, there's a certain point in, in life, Seti and Erdogan and I were talking about this 
last night also about uh, children at the age of two, we think it is. I mean, we're not really child psychologists per se, but we think we read this somewhere. Somewhere around the age of two, children will start saying the word no. Huh? Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe someone has a different experience. I don't have children, but generally. And, uh, you know, child psychologists tell us that this is a uh, uh, sign of how, like, oh, you know, ownership is arising out of that. At the same time that someone realizes that they are a self, a unique individual, they have a sense of ownership of themselves, and they express this by saying, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not a part of this out here. This is me over here. So um, John Locke has a good quote on this. And I like looking at this because it's, 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 I think it's worthwhile to look at people who are not um, occultists per se, who uh, were looking into these things. And he said, every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has a right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever then he removes out of the state of nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with and joined to it something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property, it being by him removed from the common state nature placed it in. It hath by his labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. So one of the words in this that I think uh, kind of causes me, I struggle with this, and I, and I imagine other people do too, is that he uses this word labor. And so it makes you think of, uh, it makes you think of work. And so you think, oh, work. Oh, that's, that's like kind of distasteful. That's like not very fun. But isn't it interesting that we use the term working to describe how we're using magic to change things? So by the interaction of the mind and will, the subjective universe with the conditions we find ourselves in, that is the objective universe, new creations are brought forth that we might call our own. So, again, I'm guessing this sounds familiar to a lot of people because it's basically black magic. It's LBM, it's MBM, where the subjective universe moves to establish dominion over the objective universe, to establish ownership, and it's also greater black magic where the subjective universe transforms itself into a perfected sovereign being, self-owning being. So, now I'm going to talk a little bit about free will. Isolate intelligence means that we are fundamentally free beings, free from the laws which govern the cosmos. We were designed not to be slaves, not to be lorded over by masters, and most of us find it undesirable to be in that situation or to see others in that situation. We were designed not to be governed, but to be self-governing individuals. Freedom means we have the opportunity 
to become responsible beings, to take responsibility, that we are able to take responsibility rather than have it given to us or assigned to us or being told, yeah, take responsibility for that. It makes no sense to say, again, anything without isolate intelligence should be responsible. We don't say this about animals. We don't say this about the universe, that it's responsible for giving us something. It's only through misapprehension of the role of authority that we imagine that other people under the guise of church or state are responsible for us. The psychologist uh, Viktor Frankl, one of my favorites, saw uh, responsibility as so important and fundamental a virtue that he believed a statue of responsibility should be erected on the West Coast to balance out the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. (laughs) I think that's awesome. But, I mean, of course that didn't happen. Uh, But a front... hmm? Start the Kickstarter now. Oh, wow. I like that idea. Frankel believed that it is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. So I'll talk about Viktor Frankl for a minute. He's a psychologist and probably one of the greatest uh, proponents of free will from a psychological standpoint um, in that discipline. He wrote a book called The Man's Search for Meaning under incredible conditions. He wrote this. So Viktor Frankl uh, was Jewish. He was a psychologist and he lived in Vienna during the 30s. And then uh, the Nazis like came along and they forced him and his young wife to abort their first child. That's just, yeah, crazy. So a short time later, they and his parents were arrested and deported to the Theresienstadt ghetto of North Prague. After half a year there, his father died of exhaustion. Shortly thereafter, he and his wife and mother were transported to the death camp at Auschwitz. His mother was immediately murdered in the gas chamber. Uh, He was separated from his wife as she was sent to Bergen-Belsen, where she was to die at the age of 24. And then later in cattle cars, Viktor Frankl was transported via Vienna to Kalfering and Torkheim, which are subsidiary camps of Dachau. And even under the extreme conditions of the camps, Frankl found his thesis about fate and freedom corroborated. This is where he started writing his book. In the last camp, he came down with typhoid fever to avoid fatal collapse during the nights. He kept himself awake by reconstructing his book, manuscript on slips of stolen toilet paper from the camp office. And one of the really compelling stories that he talks about is like one of the uh, one of his um, you know fellow fellow prisoners. They'd be marched out to like work. And it's like frozen, you know. And one of his uh, fellows, like, uh, he remembers him like crying as a baby because he couldn't put his shoes on anymore because his feet had swollen so much. So on April 27th, the camp was liberated by U.S. troops, and Frankel purportedly said 
I must publish my book then. People might benefit from this. Fucking incredible. So even in the degradation and abject misery of a concentration camp, Frankel was able to exercise the most important freedom of all, the freedom to determine one's own attitude, to take ownership of one's own perspective, to make a decision in favor of continuing. So rather than give in to the oppression and denigration of being that comes with imprisonment, he mentally battled his way to an unwavering belief in the power of free will and the realization that is the individual's responsibility to make the decision each for him or herself. And he accredits his ability to make that decision to be what saved him and what allowed him to continue existing through it. Again, the ability to make decisions that we were designed to do, to be able to assess value and make decisions in favor of it. So in man's uh, search for meaning, his book, he says, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. So our will, our freedom to choose is evidenced a thousand times a day in the decisions that we make. We make big decisions. We make small decisions. Small decisions like, should I order the Big Mac or the filet of fish Should I tell someone what I really think? Should I write down the instructions? Or we make big decisions. Like, should I get married? Should I take a new job offer? Should I join a kooky religion that worships a cosmic anteater? <laughs> or our friend James Kirby who made a really big decision. Huge, huge decision. As human creatures, we do all these things quite naturally. We never even question our capacity for making these evaluations because the structure is always in place for it. It's always been there. We cannot legitimately recall a time when it was not present. Right? So that's, 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 that's why we can't remember when we weren't able to do that. There have been those who have tried to make the case that all of this decision-making is purely mechanical, purely predestination. So, um, continuing with psychologists, there's B.F. Skinner, who developed a behavioral school of psychology, was famous for promoting this idea of man as a machine. And then uh, Pavlov, who I consider really just kind of a creepy torture artist, who you know cut holes in the sides of dogs' faces to like prove that they salivate with food and they could be associated, which I think anyone who's a dog owner could have like told them that, you know, um, not really that amazing of a discovery in my opinion. All for the name of science and to prove to prove that we don't have a free will. Why do they want to prove that we don't have a free will? So this ideology that goes along with this is that since we're lacking free will as human beings, 
We couldn't possibly make good decisions for ourselves, and therefore we need a proper central authority, guided by the hand of science or rashes, something, you know, faith, inspiration, to take responsibility for us. So this is the guiding thought behind the eugenics movements in England and America in the early 20th century, as well as the Nazi death camp and human experimentation, Soviet scientists trying to crossbreed apes with humans to create super soldiers. This shit all happened. All these atrocities were under the auspices of man's best interest. Again, these people up here who know what's best for everyone, and they're going to put everyone in their proper place. So eventually, all these centralized authoritarian solutions always come to the same conclusion, that free will must be obliterated. It's a key point in Orwell's 1984, when O'Brien explains to Winston Smith, if you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine a boot stepping on someone's head. Yet despite all these attempts to divert or sublimate, free will endures, evidenced by your own ability to make decisions and by having made, again, the most important decision already. And that's the decision that brought you here today. So I want to talk a little bit about immortality. So remember in the beginning, I said that you'd already made this decision in favor of individuality, freedom, and immortality. Isolated intelligence also means that we are immortal. And the keys to this, again, are in the structure of the psyche. The psyche is designed to perceive infinitely into the past as well as into the future. The Egyptians represented this idea with the ka, and uh, Dr. Aquino talks about this in his book, Mindstar. He says, while the Ba may particularly posthumously lose awareness of itself through the paradoxical expansion of that consciousness into its entire perceptive field, the Ka remains immortally finite, distinct and otherness separate. Thus, in an expressive, active sense, it becomes the externally identifiable individual beyond physical death. The winged image of the Ka is reiterated in the Mazdan system with the Fravashi, also sometimes translated as the pre-soul. Gurdjieff call, called it the causal body. The idea in Mazdaism is that we are all iterations from the ultimate principle of consciousness, much in the same way that we, from a Setian point of view, view personal psychocentric intelligence to be an iteration from the principle of isolate intelligence. But in the Mazdan system, the Fravashi or pre-soul can simply remain there in the arms of the creator, in the cosmic crib, if you will. This is where we all begin life in this like pre-soul-like kind of state before we come into this world. And we can stay there for as long as we want, 
No one's like, no one says we have to come out into this world. No one says we have to come here. So we remain in this sort of uh, larval kind of state with all the other pre-souls. And it's a wonderful place. We're in the arms of like peace and love. It's like staying in the womb forever, surrounded by amniotic fluid. And we love and are loved, and we could really just stay there forever if we wanted to. But eventually, we start to become aware of something beyond us, of something far away from us, and of something wrong about things, something wrong out there, some injustice that's like taking place. And these are the echoes from what is called the druge or the lie, which exists in, in this world that we're in right now, the middle world. It's the forces of ignorance, non-consciousness, cruelty, coercion, pollution, degradation, slavery, violence. And in our dream world in the pre-soul state, a vague sense of great cosmic injustice, of great suffering, confused and fitful presence, begins to intrude upon our peaceful slumber. So this realization alone starts to create a sort of wakefulness in us and a sense of urgency and a sense of needing to do something about it, to fight about it. Because we realize that if that can like take over everything here in the, in, in the middle world, you know, that's still beyond us at that point, then, well, what's to stop it from coming into the, into the pre-soul world, devouring everything? If I could be aware of it there, it could come here also. And this is also the force of a pep that Set has to slay every morning, the forces of, of delusion. And if it could come into that pre-soul world, then it can eventually intrude upon the principle of consciousness eventually too. It can eventually wipe that out. And in the book of Coming Forth by Night, Set talks about this. He says, Alone, I cannot preserve my elect, but I would teach them and strengthen their will against the coming peril that they and their blood may endure. To do this, I must give further of my own essence to my elect. And should they fail... The majesty of Set shall fade and be ended. So it can all end. It can all be over. Not just for us individually, but the whole thing, the whole game can be over. There's no guarantee. And when we realize that, that's when we realize that we have to do something about it. That's when we realize that we have to take responsibility. And we start by developing in ourselves, by remembering in ourselves and starting to develop consciousness in ourselves. We have a sense that we can lose. So we make this conscious decision to go and fight, to fight against the lie, and to join in that constant effort of slaying a pep and dispelling delusion. And we volunteered to do this. We volunteered to come here. This simple idea alone dispels all of the nonsense about original sin and establishes responsibility as our own. 
So the Fravashi, again, which is that, that winged symbol of Zoroastrianism, is in many ways like the Egyptian idea of the Ka. Both are represented with huge wingspans. And both send forth another aspect of the soul into the ordinary world. The Favashi sends in something called the Urvan into the world. And this Urvan is similar to the Egyptian idea of the Ba. And the Ba will one day be reunited with the Ka. In the same way that the Urvan will one day be reunited with the Favashi. My point here is these similarities indicate that these are very old ideas and that there's something universal about them. We're still talking about them here, so something resonates. Ka and Fravashi also both correspond with the Greek idea of the daemon. That the self ahead of the self, or that holy guardian angel of Aleister Crowley that has total knowledge of all past and present, and steps in every now and then to help us out in times of great need. So in the interaction of Fravashi and Urvan or Khan Ba or the self with the daemon, the holy guardian angel, pure finite consciousness maintains continuity over time with unlimited vision into the past and into the future. So again, in, in Mindstar, Dr. Aquino says, is attainment of immortality of the Ba or Psyche a technique which the individual has to learn? Must one hurry to do so, lest one's body expire before the transition is mastered? Quite the contrary. As the sage in her Bach emphasized, the immortality is innate in all conscious beings. You possess it already by evidence of that same consciousness which enables you to read and comprehend these words. It's nothing which initiation either Sedian or natural, confers on you. Rather, it is something to which conventional religions and churches have resolved to blind you and which materialistic science has denied simply because it is an aspect of existence which transcends that science. So I'm going to talk a little bit about fire. A final aspect of our design is that it's integral to all the others that we are designed to be able to receive a certain quality of nourishment. All instances of organic life, plants, insects, reptiles, mammals, and on up the chain, are designed for consuming only specific types of food. Every being has its particular food that it needs. And one type of food doesn't work for all beings. So in the same way, different orderings of life are able to process different qualities of energy. Or as is represented in the Mazdan system, different qualities of fire. So there's a kind of fire that's found within the bodies of humans and animals. It's a fire that requires its own food and water in order to be sustained. It's like life force energy. To me, it connects with the concept, the utterance of Arcte. It's a fire that binds man and animal together. Then there's a kind of fire that's found in plants. Uh, it needs water but no food. And they say, four fingers out from a plant is where you can find the perimeter of its fiery aura. 
just something you can all work with and experiment on your own. And there's a kind of fire in the clouds that we call lightning or think of as heavenly fire. And then, of course, there's ordinary fire, a lighter. It requires food or fuel, but it doesn't like water. And then you start to come across some more cosmic sorts of fire, or what I like to call super substantial fire. There's a fire of the original creation, which takes us back to the origins of the universe. It's like the red flame talked about in the statement of Leviathan, where it's said that heaven must perish, hell must perish, and man alone must remain, ere the black flame becomes red in the glory of its perfection. But the really special and super substantial fire is something called Mainyu Athra, a fire that illuminates the way of truth. And this certainly must correspond to the highest frequency of fire that we're all familiar with in the black flame. But notice also that all these manifestations of fire are connected with ideas about consuming something. They're connected with ideas about nourishment and that different fires are needed for nourishing different orderings of life and being. So for man... It's the fire called Mainyu Athra that he needs to feed his conscious evolution and growth. And this is the fire that only he can consume by virtue of his design. Man was designed to be able to consume, digest, and integrate this highest substance, this super substantial fire. It is only man that is able to consume it. For it is only man that is able to digest it and integrate it in order to produce a higher state of being. So we've talked about a lot of things. And so I want to talk about something that everyone is familiar with. Everyone has heard these words before. Everyone has uttered these words before. I am. Say it with me once. I am. Now try this. We're going to say I, breathe in, and then we'll say am and breathe out. I am. I am. In some accounts, these are the first words of God, the first conscious utterance. In Exodus 3.14, it is the response of God when Moses asks for his name. I am that I am. I think Popeye said that too. <laughs> it factors heavily in, uh, in uh, Roman Catholicism and uh, Yahweh, I am he who is. I am who am, I am who I am. And the expression also factors heavily in much of Egyptian creation cosmology. And in one version is the goddess of magic, Heka, uttering I am from within the void of creation. And it is reiterated from some of Set's first words 
in the book of Coming Forth by Night. I am the ageless intelligence of the universe. Of this, Rawan Set said, The universe as a whole is mechanically consistent, but it does not possess a God personality that favors one of its components, such as mankind above others. The Set entity, however, is a finite, limited intelligence within the universe and can draw such distinctions and make decisions. Contrast. Set is a being operating independently of the order of the objective universe, not in enforced or unconscious concert with it. So, again, psychologists like to say that the age of two is around when we start saying I am, or thinking in terms of I am. But according to Zarathustra, we said these words before we came here to this world when we were still in that pre-soul state. And in our first act of awakening, so is the first conscious action taken. We were purposefully and intentionally designed by our Creator to live freely, independently, and willfully. Can any act be called justifiable that seeks to incarcerate freedom, crush that independence, or nullify that will? Is not any such unjustified aggression against this distinctively divine state a denigration and profanation of the most sacred work of creation and of our designer and his gift? When you realize that you have already made that decision to come here, to fight for the good, individuality, to fight for success, it empowers you. It fills you with confidence and strength of mind from knowing that you've already done it. And that's the hardest part usually, making the decision and committing to something. Well, you've already done that. You just have to remember it. And when you remember that, it opens up this whole new world of energy and possibility and potential for you. Because you realize it's always, it's always been there. It's always been there before. You just weren't aware of it or aware that you were designed to absorb it and process it and integrate it into your being so that you can become the full potential of what you have been endowed with by Set, the Prince of Darkness. Why are we interested in Kefir? We're designed for it. We're designed to be able to consume the right kind of fire to remanifest a super substantial state of being. Let us seek only to cultivate and exalt that unique indwelling essence in ourself that it may in turn cultivate and exalt the essence of the worlds that we inhabit, thereby making them wonderful. Thank you very much. Thinking of the Stokes and the seizures here, the famous example of a dog tied behind a car and dragged 
it had freedom in that it can either trot along merrily or be dragged. That's its choice. It's effective in attitude. Would you consider that freedom when your actions are, are, are determined, but your, your, your uh, attitude is your own? So, you know, um, the... What's that? Well, we're kind of back to Frankel in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the big things that, that really drove Frankel to, to write the book that he wrote was essentially the idea that if there was to be any value to psychology, it had to work in the situation he was in. Yeah. And that while he could not change the nature of what was going on in terms of his imprisonment and the conditions, he could determine his experience of them. Yes. In terms of what his subjective interpretation, his sense of what he was responsible to and what was arising, and his essentially controlling what was happening within his own psyche, yeah. regardless of what else was going on. He could not control that part. He did not have the ability to have freedom in terms of what was happening there. But within that inch of space of his own being, he was still free even in this condition of austerity. And it was because of that recognition and the decision to make that control, he could hold himself together in a way that other people in that same situation crashed yeah. and broke down. And there's no moral part of that. You know, it's not superior of him that, well, oh, he held it together and these people fell apart in the shitty condition. Most people would. Um, that it's a, it's a mark of the, the real intensity of who he was, of that recognition that there is this capacity to, even in the worst of circumstances, you still get to control what's happening in terms of your experience of it. So even if you take, even if, you, if, you, if, 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 if we say, okay, let's not talk about freedom and, and responsibility and will in terms of absolute states, Let's say it is a let's say it's a continuum. Let's grant that, and that's you know, plants have their own version. They have their own version of it. They have their own scale of it. Animals have their own scale of it. Well, what does man do? What are we What are we going to do with that reality of it? How do we make those decisions? Do we make our decisions in well, let's get let's go in this direction. You know, free, if if the continuum's going this way, are we going to go in the direction of animals and plants? Are we going to go in the direction of more? Freedom, and so I mean, this is very much how Gurdjieff like represented the cosmos. So anyone who's read, you know, um, uh, In Search of the Miraculous, where they talk about laws, where Spinsky gets all mathematical and says, in this world there's like five thousand laws, but the next world there's less laws, less laws. Well, the whole point of that is you want to move in the direction of less laws. You want to move in the, di- the direction of freedom. So you make decisions in the direction of that based upon your circumstances, based upon the context that you find yourself in. I feel like you're almost... <laughs> I, I, I just felt like you are about to diverge into like some libertarianism, like populist sort of... Populist theory? Yeah. No, I wasn't going to say. Like the very like beginning so. of your talk, really, like I thought it could have diverged into that, but I'm glad you took the direction you did. So within that whole body of literature, there's things that are, in my opinion, that are like fundamentally based on these like essential truths. So rather than go in that particular direction, I think the important thing for us is to always like come back to like these fundamental, the fundamental truths. This whole system that we have here is based on isolate intelligence and these fundamental things about isolate intelligence and how we apply those to the universe, how we apply those to our particular context here. And it just, I mean, 
I mean, John Locke and a lot of these guys in the Enlightenment, you know, established a lot of these ideas. These guys, these guys were establishing a lot of these like fundamental um, ideas. I guess economical reasons for why information started to like go out, like the printing press and things like that, and people were like, you know, felt more free from having lived under thousands of years where what you believed was just a matter of what what the church said you're going to believe, whatever your central authority. One of the things that I took away from a few different sources, but I'm just going to pull Reich out of uh, thin air and and some of his books. Do do, do you need some wood and some metal and we can extract him from the... (laughs) Um, And and I'm thinking of books like, you know, Mass Psychology of Fascism, which is on our reading list, where kind of like the end conclusion of this is that in terms of functionality, there's not a lot of difference between church and state. I was trying to battle my way through a lot of these ideas in the Arabeth transmissions and working with this idea of uh, centralized authority. Just, let's just talk about central authority. Let's just talk about power structure as a power structure. And the Diabolicon presents a lot of these similar, similar patterns also, that there's this centralized authority. And that what are the daemons trying to do? Well, they're trying, they're trying to get away from the centralized authority. So they're going to a place that's that's chaotic, that's pandemonium, where there's fewer laws. And, and what happens there? Well, they take different shapes and, you know, do magic with each other and, you know, all of this stuff. And everything's really nice, right? They're having a great time in pandemonium. But then what happens? Well, they got a sense of injustice happening in another world, right? And what was that? That was planet Earth, right? There's, like, humans there, you know, and so, hey, let's... Uh, Let's help these creatures out. Let's give, them a, let's give them a chance. Let's give them something. Let's give them the black flame. Let's give them the opportunity to experience this. Given that freedom is ultimately axiomatic, given that freedom is ultimately axiomatic and at the same time desirable, it's very enjoyable to have, why do some choose to take away the freedom of others and perhaps worse, perhaps not, why do some willingly give their freedom away? Why do they go, brown shirt and jackboots, send it my way? Um, some people take freedom away from other people yeah. because they're evil. Right, because they suck. I I mean, I don't have a better explanation than that. They fucking suck. And so some people give away their freedom because, I don't know, because they don't want the responsibility responsibility or because they're afraid. Because the people who take away freedom, like, they, they have... They have ways of doing it. They have tricks of doing that. They make it seem desirable or they make it seem like, well, the alternative is, you know... You see this fist, you know, so. What I love about what you're doing is you're defining freedom in a really different way, which is as stewardship, right? It's like a completely, so like maybe people are giving it away because they don't either have a connection to the idea of stewardship or like what you're saying. They're like, I don't want the responsibility of what it means to have less rules, right? If you're going to take away the, have less law, then inherently that, that is embodying the whole idea of stewardship. That's the freedom. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's a good. That's that's a really that's a really good point. Um, and I feel that, like, um, for the most part, most of the the 
the Magi and the prophets or lords of the left-hand path or, you know, the, the, the Dr. Flowers likes to talk about the Maz Mega from uh, Zoroastrianism, the brotherhood, right? The idea that, you know, these people appear over time with, like, messages. And the message is always, it's always really about freedom, right? Isn't it always really about that? I mean, there's certain, there's certain you know, you got to take the context that they're in and they have to use different language because their audience is different every time. Their audience is at different levels of enslavement. There are different levels of being, you know, deprived of freedom or having forgotten about freedom. Because that's the other thing, too, is like forgetting, right? I mean, that's another reason why people lose freedom is because they forget about it. And so, you know, Gurdjieff would talk about this, that this, well, there's a cosmic inertia. There's an inertia that, like, pulls people down that, you know, no, it's not really evil people. It's this force in the universe, Hmm? Exactly, exactly. Egyptian mythology, we talk about a pep. I mean, it's a force of uh, delusion and set slays a pep. He doesn't meditate a pep away. He kicks ass. He fights. So it's a struggle. And that's, uh, that's the language that you find in a lot of these. We talk about the struggle. Uh, the struggle to remember. The struggle to find consciousness, the struggle for freedom. I mean, that's really clear when you're talking about something as you know, obvious as freedom and, and slavery and, and, and people who are enslaved battling their way out of that. Obviously, that always happens really you know, violently, right? There's, always, there's, a, there's some fight there. There's always some fight there. And so um, we fight in our own ways internally. We fight and struggle and learn ways to uh, try and re-manifest um, freedom. And we also find ways to help ourselves remember. You know, initially when we get set on this path, we remember accidentally because of a shock, something, man. And you have a moment of clarity about things. And then you gain something from that, if you're lucky. You take something from that, and then you start maybe trying to find other situations like that, find other influences like that that'll help you remember again, help you get that. And if you keep pursuing it, you end up, you know, some weird cult that worships a cosmic anteater, apparently. So. Something and that's totally reflected in the whole Mazaism. Yeah, yeah. Like if they're not free from the, I'm sorry, I can't remember the term, but the pre soul or whatever, they're they're choosing to go do something. Right. Freedom to do it. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's a great line in uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra from Nietzsche where um, this character of Zarathustra says, you know, free from what? That doesn't matter. It's free for what? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that, that right there, I think, is the most profound thing about that whole, that whole system, that whole thing, is that you made that decision to do that, and that just completely, and that's a game changer right there. Um, again, that just wipes away all of the you know, original sin. With what we have with SETI and cosmology, 
you know, we just kind of had this, there's always this idea of, well, where did man come from? Where did consciousness come from? Well, it's kind of like, well, there's like evolution and then, you know, there's kind of a naturalistic sort of narrative about this. That's like there was evolution from like, um, you know, uh, monkeys to semi-humans to Neanderthals. And then at some point there's like intervention or something like that. Right. Um, but there wasn't much about this idea of our pre-soul existence. And so, you know, I, 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 I came into, I fell into the Zoroastrian stuff right around the same time that I fell into this mind star stuff. And so Dr. Aquino is like talking about these different aspects of it now. So he's talking about immortality. You know, when you bring up immortality, everyone says, oh, I'm going to live after I die. The future. So don't worry about that. Let's, let's talk about your consciousness before you came here. Yeah. And that there is, well, let's, let's see if we can talk about our existence before we came here. Let's see if we can remember that or have like a impression of that. And that, that like really changes, that really changes a lot of things. That's one of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Everton, you said there's a part saying that it all can end. So as far as I experience, as we discussed with this show, we say that the self is immortal. So how can it all end? So how, how can it be? Because you said that it all can end. There was a part uh, in your speech. Oh, yeah. So... <laughs> Because it can forget. Because it can forget. Also, it's like, well, maybe we already restarted like several times already. Right. So we have now a chance, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I mean, that's a good mystery to reflect upon. Um, but, I mean, certainly, I mean, there's this idea that people like forget beyond a certain point. Right? I mean, there's mythological examples of this, you know. You fall asleep in the, fall asleep in the forest of, you know, the poppies from Wizard of Oz or something. I don't know. There's something like that. <laughs> there's this idea that, you know, people can forget. They can go too far, and they're beyond. They're beyond hope. I mean, Ospensky makes, in, in, he makes this point in a number of his lectures. That that's, that's the thing. It's like people can get to a point where they forget so much and they're not interested in these things at all that there's not really any hope of them ever like getting back to it. We all know this. We all know this from the world that we inhabit, the worlds we inhabit and the people that we work with. There's people that are just, there's some like, uh, there's just too much inertia built up and they're not really going to, they're not really going to go anywhere. So, so we, we realize that we have to like move in the direction of, of where the consciousness is. And that's what we're really developing uh, in a real sense, I think, an initiation. We're developing an intuition or another sense of what is valuable. Again, going back to the ability to make decisions and to assess value and to go where is the most valuable um, resources for remanifesting freedom and, and will and the things that, that, I, that I really need. So 
we don't always have to like understand everything in the universe completely and fully. But we understand our little piece of it and we have ideas about what's the best thing to do. Given the circumstances, given the context, given the conditions, what's the best thing I can do? You know, Viktor Frankl in the concentration camp. The best thing I can do is have good thoughts of like how I might get out of here someday and I'm going to try and write it down and make a decision in favor of life. That's the best I can do right now. And so that's how you win that battle. Yes? Can you talk about more uh, about the delineation between uh, responsibility and freedom? Like if you took the diabolicon as being a literal, like something that literally happened, and the idea that they gave us the black flame, is that freedom or responsibility? Because if you think about it, if you think about it in terms of us making artificial intelligence now, we're kind of just doing it because we can. Right. And so that's a freedom. It's not necessarily like that's not a responsibility we have to that thing because that thing's technically like in pre-soul phase right now uh-huh. in, in your vocabulary. Right. So I'm just curious what you think about that. No, that's a great question. Um, so, so first, I don't take diabolicon as being like a literal thing. But I do take it as being something very significant. I mean, this is something that was like, if you consider the book of Coming Forth by Night to be significant, well, it, the Diabolicons referred to in the book of Coming Forth by Night as being significant. So there's something about it. There's something about it. There's some patterns in here that are, like, that are uh, relevant and, and significant. And the question of bestowing life on something else is a heavy question. And so... Um, I mean, they think about that for a long time. They have a controversy about that. They debate about, you know, whether they should do that or not, that that's like a really significant thing. And there's this other idea. Again, it's out of the Diabolicon. um, and, And the idea of the red magus. And that through initiation, there's a certain point in initiation where you continue your existence by that giving of the gift to other beings. And so we do this in a, on, in, on one scale, we do this simply through initiation, just through the interaction that we all have with each other, right? Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a fairly obvious way, the priesthood like does this, interacting with people, but all initiates do this. You know, when you interact with someone else and you say, well, I figured this out, and they're like, oh, I haven't thought of that before. Maybe you're giving them something that's helping them on their way. And you learn through initiation that you have to do that. That you can't just take stuff from other people. You can't just take gems of, of wisdom from other people. You realize well part of the process is I have to like give, I have to give to someone else also. That's how it all works to continue your existence on it. So I consider when that sort of giving of the gift question is being talked about on a cosmic level, like in the Diabolicon or, or, or Book of Coming Forth by Night, it's a similar pattern to what we're doing. And that's like the big, that's the big message in it, is that when you're doing these things, when you're absorbing and you're helping others and feeding others, you're kind of emulating, you're emulating set when you do that. You're emulating the daemons when you do that. And you're making decisions about, well, should I do that? Because you probably know people in your life that you're like, they wouldn't be able to handle this. It's not, you know, it's not good for them. It's not good for everyone. So this is the daemon saying, well, I think man can handle it. The, the frogs might not be able to handle it. Let's leave the frogs alone. But let's like give the black flame to man, see how 
how he can do it. One of the other features in terms of the decision that's made is to increase the possibility of the universe. There, there comes a point in time, though, where that could be anti-self. Like, if you're sharing it with the wrong people, for instance, mm -hmm. uh -huh. then that, yeah. you're shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the giving of the gift was a, was a extreme risk. But it was a risk yeah. that had to be taken in order that consciousness could exist outside of what we said. There was no other way. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in Gurdjieff and also in the, in, the, in the Mazdan stuff, spreading consciousness like that is helping the universe in a cosmic way too. It's not just helping mankind live off of this barren, unfeeling, non-conscious you know, shit. It's, like, it's, like, it's more like you know, Pythagoras talks about the music of the spheres you know, and how all of the universe like, moves together in harmony. And consciousness arising in the universe helps actually support that harmony. And so there's stories about like when uh, you know con there's problems with consciousness on Earth. There's cosmic cataclysms that happen. Earth's second moon crashing into Earth. If you are ignorant in a situation, can you be? Can you still be coerced, or can you still make decisions about being free? I mean, like you think about situations, and maybe this is trivial, but like. You think you're being afforded choice because some product says you get all these choices now, but you scroll down to the bottom and agree to all the terms and conditions about how they'll gather all your data. Right, you didn't so read the fine print. Market yeah. Too. So this yeah. is still kind of a you know, situation or, or, you know, I think about my kids. Uh -huh. Assuming, uh, you know, they don't like something and I'm violating their free will. Right. So but they, they can't apprehend or understand you know, responsibility at the same time. So I'm just kind of wondering about that. Well, children, I think uh, in one sense, children, there's a certain point, and you know, I'm ready for everyone who's had children to throw stuff at me and say, shut the fuck up, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, um, and legally we look at it this way, children to a certain point, they are considered your property as parents. Right? It kind of falls under a property thing where you're responsible for them to a certain point. And it's like, well, what age? I don't know. We go back and forth and talk about what age that isn't the case anymore. <laughs> right. For some, of us, for some of us, it goes on for a really long time. So that's it. And, and, and so as far as like, um, and then I, I think it's like a different scenario that you're talking about. Like, I didn't read the fine print. I freely signed this contract, but, this, but they fucked me over. Well, I mean, that doesn't mean free will exists. That just means that people can... Right, that just means that, 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 that you can swindle people. And so that happens. That happens in life. There's just, so, I mean, the, the, the idea that everyone is free and, and has free will and should be allowed to live freely isn't like a uh, utopian. It's not like a vision of utopia. Right? It's not saying that, oh, it's, everything's going to be perfect. Well, no. People are going to like, you know, have our disagreements about stuff, and they're going to like, work it out. But the question as far as that is, like, would a centralized authority be able to decide all this for you more efficiently? Um, are they in a better position to like, monitor all the, all the 35,000 decisions that every human being has to make in this room every day? Is it even possible that a centralized system could do that for everyone and have everyone come out like, yeah, I got a good deal out of this?
So that's like really the question about there. It's, again, it's not a question of whether absolute one way or the other is best, but whether we're, if we're allowed the freedom or we take the freedom to be able to, move, to make these decisions in that direction, whether that's a better position to be in. on you and everything coming in your Facebook feed is this right and all the kind of attentional comments that you have is now occupied by but the thing is though, you need to get off Facebook then <laughs> struggle for your freedom right like and the information is out there so you know that Facebook is an all-time manipulative crap you found out somehow right so it's because probably you read other things that are more interesting that are not on Facebook because you want to get to the deeper truthful things right so there's that responsibility too, or a trajectory of growth that happens, right? The far further you dig in, the more you are able to to see what the extent of your freedom actually is. I do think that there is there's a challenge, and I don't think there is an easy answer to attempting to be a good faith actor in a bad faith context. Right. You know, and that that is certainly your responsibility to those who are acting in bad faith. Well, <laughs> you know, two plus two is not five. Yeah. <laughs> and you're free to be free from Facebook or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah. What there, I was like, oh, going back to freedom and um, almost like the golden rule of morality. I had this vision of being in my ecology class back 20 years ago, the web of life, and the fact that, you know, the web of life, there's a bit, there's a diagram that scientists created where from the smallest organism to the top of the food chain, and almost going to your website, you know, here's the thing, there's no free lunch. So somebody's always taking something from something below it to sustain their own life. So you can talk about, I'm looking at the whole animal kingdom here, but essentially to sustain my own existence, I must take that freedom away from another organism to live. Whether it's a plant or a animal, and that goes all the way up the food chain. And eventually some microorganisms will consume you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like reciprocal. Like I, I ate sushi last night, and there's probably so many organisms like eating my innards right now that I know. <laughs> right? so, uh, sushi's good for you. But, um, you have to go like a lion or something to eat too. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's all about me, and I will kill and eat you and tough shit. You know, but it's almost it's almost a very satanic kind of thought too. Is like nobody else matters except for me at any cost. Not say like church satanic, but like the most darkest kind of. So this goes this goes back to the uh, the uh, continuum, the continuum sort of thing that everyone like every yeah. organism eats something, and is food for something, something else, and so. Um, so our decision is what direction of, uh, that, that we want to be food for. This comes back to what kind of um, influences we want to attract to ourselves. Okay, and this is like an initiatory thing, and this is how we start to develop. A, we develop a magnetic quality in ourselves through initiation to try and attract the right kind of forces to us rather than the wrong kind of forces to us. So that's like, this gets into a GBM kind of thing. Or rather than like making decisions about all these sorts of things, we start to create this quality in ourselves, a certain quality of magnetism 
um, that will attract the right kind of influences for us. So this is old, this is a Sufi saying of um, you make um, right now you make grape juice when you could make wine. You talk about what you produce, what you produce, and what you're creating is attracting what um, ultimately feeds upon you. And so Gurdjieff talked about like the moon. And this is what I was thinking about during a, a lot of your presentation. There's this idea that um, uh, we're food for the moon. This is kind of Gurdjieff's idea of, of, of concept of hell, right? Where souls go. If you don't do anything, you don't do anything with your existence, right? You don't do anything to change what you are, then you end up being food for the moon, right? Your soul, and, and you know, this is the, the moon is just populated by all these dead, non-conscious souls. But that has a cosmic function. That, that has a purpose. That keeps the moon from crashing into us. It gives human stupidity a purpose, at least. Yes. They're dumb as bricks, but at least they're feeding the moon. Right, right. So this is like functionality to people, the people that are not conscious, because if that didn't happen, then, then the moon would uh, crash into the earth, and something like happened like this a long time ago, and that's why the second moon, which is called Anulios, crashed into the earth like quite some time ago. But the idea then is to change the uh, magnetic sort of uh, system within yourself so that you go in a different direction with things, so that these other bodies and other potentials that you have move upwards in the direction of the sun, which is subject to less laws because it's closer to the center of the universe than the moon. The moon is like subject to more laws. It's subject to all the laws that we have on Earth, plus all the laws that the sun is subject to, plus all the laws that you know all solar systems are subject to, all fall down onto the moon. So we're not on the moon yet, but we're close. Earth is really close to being the worst place in the whole universe. But we have a choice to kind of try and move out of it. I guess that's done. When I'm talking about food for the moon, you know, we're like, so. All right, thank you, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to another installment of Damonosophy 2.0, the only podcast exploring the congruence of liberty and the left hand path. For more information, visit our website at www.damonosophy.com. Follow our tweets at airbeth underscore trans. Or join the discussion on Facebook at the Damonosophy Group. Until next time, keep the dark fire burning. (laughs) 